0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So let's just jump right in. We get to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, and we read, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, uh, we've studied about John the Baptist. He was this, having this huge impact. All these people were coming out to get baptized, and now John's position was, I must decrease so that he must increase. John's position was, I have to transfer the people that are responding to my message over to Jesus because Jesus is what this is all about. And so you can tell that the, the ruling authorities who are already worried about John are now really starting to be like, what is going on with this guy, Jesus? And Jesus is down in Judea, and he's going to go back up to more of his hometown in Galilee. And there are several ways to do that. If we pull up the map, we see this is ancient Israel. This is the area of Judea. That's where Jerusalem is. This area here is called Samaria. And then north of Samaria is Galilee. Sychar is where the story that we're going to study this morning happens. And you see that Samaria was outside culturally, politically of Israel at this point. And there was actually a great deal of hatred between the Samaritan people and the Jewish people. Uh, They had 700 years of conflict between them. And so, normally, if a rabbi or someone of spiritual significance from from, uh, Israel was going to travel from Judea up to Galilee, they would take the long way around. They didn't even want to go into Samaria. You know, they were like, these guys are are awful, they're sinners, I don't want to get filthed by breathing the same air as they do. It was that bad. And the reasons are historically significant. To understand what was going on here... You know, Israel at one point around 1,000 BC was united under David and Solomon into one nation. And so all these people were under the same religion, the same culture, the same language. And then after a very short period of time, about 928 BC, there was a division and there became what was known as the Northern Kingdom of Israel and the Southern Kingdom of Judah. And there was conflict, there was tension between the divided nation of Israel. Well, the northern kingdom, you know, came, went further and further away from God. Frankly, both kingdoms struggled and uh, got into idolatry, got into the false religions of their neighbors, broke their covenant with God. But the northern kingdom was worse, and so they got wiped out first. In 722 BC, Assyria came in, and made it all the way and just obliterated the northern kingdom of Israel was gone. And the people who lived in the northern kingdom, a lot of them stuck around, and they began intermarrying and mixing their religion. And so the people in the southern kingdom were like, oh, this is so terrible. You know, they're creating this, you know, counterfeit version of our faith. And they didn't really even identify as Jewish anymore. They began to identify as Samaritans. And so over time, Assyria came, Assyria went, Babylon came. Babylon actually made it all the way down and conquered Judah as well. And these these big nations and big armies would come. Alexander the Great would come in, and then he died, and then they divided his kingdom. And now we get to the time of Christ, and it's all under Roman rule. But what it looks like at this time is different because the Samaritans as they mixed sort of some of their religious ideals with the Assyrians and their different captors and people that came through, actually established another temple that they believed was the true temple. And they were the true descendants of Abraham. And you can imagine how that played down in Jerusalem. And they're on the Mount Gerizim. They had their own temple. And this is why we wind up at the time of Christ, with this really divided, culturally divided, tense situation. The northern part, Galilee had come back, and they believed that the temple in Jerusalem was the true temple. But this middle section became known as Samaria. And there was a great deal of hatred and separation between these two people. So if you're going to travel from one place to another, the whole thing is only about 120 miles from the south of Israel to the northern tips of Israel. And if you were going to go that way, you would typically go around. And what John is cueing us into here is that's not what Jesus does. He goes right through Samaria, right past Mount Gerizim, where the temple is, and he stops at the city of Sychar, where Jacob's well is. And so we come into our story in in John chapter 4, verse 5, and we see so he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So he's sitting there, hanging out, and in verse 7 and 8 we read, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water from the well. And Jesus sees her and he says, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So Jesus is out there by himself, the disciples go in to get groceries, and while he's waiting for them to come back, this single woman, it's the sixth hour of the day, this would have been the hottest part of the day, probably noon, and this one Samaritan woman comes up and Jesus is like, hey, I see you got a rope and a bucket there, here's a well, can you help me out? And there are immediately two issues with this woman that would have been very clear to the original audience. The first we just spent time talking about, she's a Samaritan. The whole 700 years of cultural hatred. And that's going to come up and play very heavily in this conversation with them. These two have lots of reasons not to talk. It would be an awkward moment where we're like, she'd be like, I didn't expect to see a rabbi here, that's for sure. And he was like, well, I wouldn't have expected a woman to come out here by herself in the middle of the hottest part of the day. And that's the second issue that would have been clear to the original audience, she is a woman. In the ancient world, women were not regarded highly at all. There were a lot of problems. Uh, It was much much more similar to what we see in some of the cultures today that oppress women the most heavily. Women uh, did not have control. They did not have political power. They really, in most cases, didn't have financial power. And there were lots of things where it was a disgrace, for example, in in, in this culture for a man to talk publicly with a woman, even his own daughter or wife, was considered uncouth. You know, it was this thing where they literally were supposed to walk behind the man a certain number of paces, and they were not supposed to talk to their husband in a public setting. And so no rabbi would, would, would speak with a woman that he doesn't know out in public, the two of them left there alone. This would have been a very awkward situation under most circumstances. However, as we've seen, Jesus is no ordinary rabbi. He doesn't play by the traditions of men. And none of this was, none of these rules that we're talking about came from the Bible. It came from the traditions of men. And so his request, hey, can I get a drink, would have been scandalous. Just would have been this thing where it was like, whoa, you're going to break the, the wall that's supposed to be between us? We're supposed to ignore the fact that each other exists. And we see this when we see her response. She immediately goes right to that. He says, hey, can I have a drink? And the Samaritan woman says... How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? And John puts in the footnote, for Jews have no dealing with Samaritans, if you don't know what that's all about. And she's a very interesting character as we look and we understand who she is. You know, I, I imagine her as, you know, almost like this fiery Irish redhead, you know, where it's like she's, you know, she's this uh, spunky, you know... I just made a stereotype. It's awful. But you're only going to be offended if you're a fiery Irish redhead. I'm a Scotsman, and the trouble with Scotland is it's full of Scots. Okay? So let's just get all past that. She's not Irish. She probably almost definitely doesn't have red hair. But that's how I see her in this scenario for some reason. She's spunky. That's my point. She is not, like, he broke the wall, right? And she's like, like, oh, well, if we're going to talk, let's talk, right? And so she's like, you know, what right do you have to talk to me? I see you're thirsty, the sun is high in the sky. Oh, so we're just going to ignore all this. I'm a Samaritan, I'm a woman, you're a Jewish rabbi, but when you're thirsty, none of that matters. I bet if I had a need, it would matter, right? That's the essence of what she's saying. And Jesus does what Jesus has been doing a lot lately. He says something weird. He says in response to her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And you could tell that is not what she was expecting. No rational person would expect this response. I mean, essentially what he's saying here is, if you weren't so wrong in your spiritual beliefs, if you knew spiritual truth and you knew how important I am, I could have given you something much more important than water. That's a strange response. And it's very interesting to think, you know, what's she going to do? And, you know, now she's like ready to go. I mean, we talked last week, you know, Jesus was sparring with Nicodemus, you know, and it was sort of this, you know, and she's like, all right, here we go, you know? She's like ready to rock. It says, you know, chapter 4, verse 11, she says to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Just 10 seconds ago, you were asking me for a drink, and you didn't have what you needed to get a drink. And now you're telling me, If you're such a fancy man with so much to offer, where's your bucket? (laughs) You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And you see what she's doing here? She's saying, you're in Samaria now. But you know what we have here in Samaria? Stuff from Jacob. You know, Jacob... Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, one of the patriarchs, one of the founders of our faith. You guys down in Jerusalem think you're so high and mighty. Right here, you're standing at Jacob's well. Jacob, what was his other name? What was the name that God gave him later? Oh, yeah, Israel. (laughs) You can tell she's digging right on, you know, this cultural tension between them. And she's like, you're in the land of the originals here. And you're not saying that you're greater than Jacob who gave us, the Samaritans, this well, are you? And Jesus is, you know, not afraid of a fight. He zeroes in. He says to her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst But the water I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And this is so similar to what he said to Nicodemus, isn't it? Right? He said, you're born spiritually dead. You have to be born again. You have to be born in the flesh. And you have to be born in the spirit. You need spiritual life. And you need to receive spiritual life from me. He's saying, I'm not talking about your... physical thirst i'm talking about your thirst for meaning i'm talking about the part in you that wonders if you matter i'm talking about the part in you that longs for a god that you do not know i'm talking about real thirst that's what i could quench not physical life Not sustaining your physical life. That's not what the water I have does. It's eternal life. It's spiritual life. You need the living water that I have. That's what he's saying. Or, I don't need a rope or a bucket to give you that. But he is offering it to her. And now, you know, she gets real spunky. Verse 15, the woman says, well, sir, give me this water so I won't have to come down here and draw water all the time. Give me your magical water that will make it so I never thirst again. That'd be great. And this is a typical response. We see this a lot to spiritual truth. It's cynicism. You know, this is a person who has surely been told and taught spiritual things, has had encounters with people claiming to be spiritual men, spiritual women. Uh, she's been burned. There's a hard-heartedness here, you can tell. You know, she's not open. You know, she's, she is hard. Here's this guy that she's never seen before that's traveling through Samaria as a Jewish rabbi, which should be a curiosity in and of itself. And he's talking to her about her spiritual life, and she's just like... Get out of my face. No, I won't get you a glass of water. And he's talking to her about spiritual things, and she's just defending and beating. And it's clear that she's been beat down. Like many of us, she's been beat down by so many fake spiritual promises. I'm not having this from you today, she's saying. I have been down this road before. I've looked to the spiritual life, the spiritual realm and I've been burned. I just want to get my water and go home. That's how a lot of people feel. A lot of people in our lives right now feel just like she did. And when you get that way and somebody confronts you with something spiritual, they will often make a mockery of spiritual things. Just be like, oh, you know, aren't you so godly and righteous? You don't know anything. That's The idea, you know, where her heart's at as she's being confronted with this person. It's a person unlike any other person who's ever lived. It's God come to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is getting to the heart of her pain. He is sort of relentlessly zeroing in. He says, I see the cynicism, the hard-heartedness. I'm not bothered by the mockery. And he gets out his can opener and says, we're going to open up the the armor around your heart here, and we're going to expose you because you need this. This is your moment where everything can change for you. And if I have to go straight at you in order to get there with you, I'm willing to do that. And he points to her real need. In verse 16, he says, why don't you go call your husband and tell him to come here? And the woman says, I have no husband. And Jesus said, that's right. You have correctly said, I have no husband. for you have had five husbands. And the one who you live with now is not your husband. What you've said to me is very true. Now, we can, we're astute enough culturally to be like, that is wow. You know, uh, but it's so much worse in his time. You know, the way that we view divorce in our culture now, I mean, it's like, it's, it's sad. And, you know, but, you know, if divorce in our culture in America 40 years ago was like, you know, something, was, you know, if somebody got divorced, that was a big deal. We're going back 2,000 years. Okay? And to have somebody who's been married five times, maybe she was widowed a couple of them, maybe not, but to be married five times comes with baggage. Whether it's what? There's pain, there's loss, there's fear. And to be shacking up with him in the ancient world is again like, oh. You read this and, you know, you can't help but be like, Jesus, be nice. That's like really, wow. You're just going to boom right in there. Use the God thing to tell her you know everything about her pain, everything about her life. Her choices and circumstances have made her ashamed. Why is she out at the well at the hottest part of the day alone? Everybody else draws in the morning when it's cool and gets the water they need for the day. She probably doesn't want to be around those other women who are doing that work. She's coming at a time where there's not supposed to be anybody here. But Jesus is there. And he's pointing to this pain She has hardened her heart. Surely she thinks she's not lovable. She's just hanging on. And Jesus, what he's really saying to her, while it seems harsh, let's look at it for what it really is. He's saying, I know you. I know you. I know all your bad choices. I know all your pain. I know why you're this way and I'm still offering you eternal life. I'm offering you the chance to be God's daughter. And there is no mystery with me about how messed up things are in here with you. That's really something, isn't it? That's a message that many of us need to hear. Many of us are just longing to know that we could be accepted that despite all of our pain and all of our bad choices and all the hurts and, you know, all the pain that we've caused other, that others, that someone somewhere would be willing to know all of it, all the baggage, and say, I still love you and I want you in my life. And to think that that would be God who says that, it's a game changer. It's a game changer if you can connect with that. And we see that, we see the first genuine thing that she said. Her response here in verse 19 is, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. She's melting, right? It's, it's, oh my God. You know, she's never seen this guy in her life. It's not like, you know, they grew up in the same town, right? She knows he has never been there. She has never seen him before. And he has just told her, and pointed to the real pain, the real, the real ugliness of what she's dealing with in herself. And she's like, you have to be from God. She's probably thinking, Why did I have to come out here and find a prophet? <laughs> I was trying to find no one. And God sends a prophet. So he's getting through. She's speaking honestly with them. But, you know, the reality is pride is such a powerful thing. And they're in a fight, right? And whether the person is right, I don't know. You guys have probably never done this. I have once or twice. Been in a fight, realized I was wrong, and then still try to win the fight. I'm sure it's just me. So she rallies all of her spunk. And she takes one last, you know, there's this moment of... All right, you. Well, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. Remember, they're at the the foot of Mount Gerizim where the temple is, the Samaritan temple. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Another very typical response to being confronted with spiritual truth, deflection. He's just moved in. She was going to fight. She was cynical. She was hard-hearted. You know, she was going to mock and make fun. And now Jesus got his can opener out and her heart's laying out there. And now she's just going to deflect. What about this huge cultural issue between your people and my people? What about the Samaritans and the Jews? Who's right or wrong about that? What do you have to say about that, rabbi? she's just desperate to get the spotlight of truth off of her heart. And in 21, Jesus answers and he says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. And so what he does here is respectfully. Now remember back in John 2, we talked about Jesus talking to his mom and he said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? And I explained that woman in his culture and in the way this is translated is a, a term of respect. He uses the same term that he used to address his mother as he does this woman. And when he says, woman, I'm telling you, a time is coming and now is. So he is respectfully Laying down truth. And it's hard truth. And what does he say? He says, the thing you need to know, dear lady, is that you guys are wrong. The Samaritan thing is a farce. The Jewish people have it right. They are the ones who are more closely following Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. The temple is supposed to be in Jerusalem. This is not. This whole thing that you guys are into is not true. But you don't have to go to Jerusalem to be made right with God. You don't have to be Jewish to be made right with God. And what's wrong is the whole understanding that's fueling this fire between our people is a complete misunderstanding of who God is. He says in 23, An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What is he saying? He's saying you need spiritual life. You need the spirit of God to come into your life. That's the whole thing I've been talking to you about with the living water thing. And you need to know the truth. The truth of God. Because God loves you. He has put me here at this time in this place to help you see it. And he is offering you the chance to become a worshiper of him. A member of his family, and be given spiritual life, eternal life, and you don't have to go to Israel, and you don't have to go to the temple, because God is everywhere, even here in Samaria, and even with you, the woman at the well. Will you receive him? That's what Jesus is saying here. It doesn't matter what your background is. Why did John, our author, take Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the ruler, the teacher of Israel, and put that story right next to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? Why did he do that? And what does Jesus do in both of these stories? The same exact thing. Pharisee Samaritan woman, doesn't matter. Clean liver, immoral life, doesn't matter. Jewish, non-Jewish, doesn't matter. God wants you to know the truth. We all approach him the same way, and God wants to be in all of our lives. Imagine being an early reader of this reading this and and seeing these things laid out, it would have been crazy. If you're a Jewish person in the first century, reading this, you're just like, what? This totally goes against what I've been told my entire life about God. I've been told good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Be a clean liver and, and be good and pious and do good things for bad people, and you've earned it. And if you're a bad person who's immoral and selfish and you steal and you're, you're sexually promiscuous, then, you know, God will not accept you. That's what I've been told my whole life. And Jesus just went to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, the member of the Sanhedrin, and the teacher of Israel, and a Samaritan woman, and said, you're the same. God loves you both. God wants you both to be in a relationship with him. But both of you need spiritual life. And as it stands right now, both of you are spiritually dead. And the way into that life is me. That's the message that he sent. It's such a radically different picture. It's hard for us to grasp. I, I, I wrestled with a while, like, what are some, what are, what are some modern comparisons to this? And it would be like, you know, if this were a modern context, it would be like saying, let's take the Dalai Lama, who's so nice. If you've ever seen an interview, he's so nice and oppressed and wants peace. His whole life, he says, is about peace. And when you see him, you're like, I want to know this person. He seems really, like, nice. And he cares and his life is dedicated to helping people. And it's like Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter if you're the Dalai Lama or Kim Jong-un. God loves them and wants a relationship with them, and they need to do the same thing. Now we're like, oh, not that, you know. And you can swap it out. We can go back and we can say Mother Teresa and Hitler. However, you know, put in the placard, whoever you want, the people, the very best people that have ever lived on earth. And have done more sacrifice and more good. And the very worst people who have done the very worst things. And I'm not saying they're the same in the sense of, you know, the impact they've had on the world is radically different. But I'm saying that the path for them to God, according to Jesus Christ, is the same. It's faith. It's not what they do. It's what they believe. And this is this would have been just as shocking to them to have Nicodemus and the woman and the Samaritan woman put right next to each other. So what does she do? She tries the final brush off, right? And she goes to the, the fortress that so many go to when their arguments have failed, when, you know, they can't prove you wrong. When, you know, the hard-heartedness, the cynicism, the deflection, all that's failed. But there's a good, old-fashioned fortress that you can retreat to. And she goes right there in verse 25. She says, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. What is she saying here? She's saying, yeah, 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 you guys have your traditions and your interpretation. We have our traditions and our interpretation. But no one can say for sure what God is really like. I mean, there are so many different interpretations of what the Bible says. Who could know? And so one day, maybe God himself will show up and he'll set us right on all of this. But until that day, it's just your word and your interpretation against mine. And boy, did she say that to the wrong guy. Right? Because, like, you know, this is like this incredibly dramatic moment where Jesus is like, I'm really glad you went there. She's saying maybe one day God in person will come and tell us what the truth is. But until then, all we can do is wonder. And Jesus says in 25, I who speak to you am he. That's me you're talking about. The day has come. The day where God comes and tells us what things are really like is today, he says. That day has come for you. And I am telling you what God is really like. God really does want to be in your life. God really does know all of your pain, all of your hurt, and all of the bad decisions that you've made. He knows every time you've shaken your fist at him. He knows every time that you've cursed his name. And he really loves you, and he's really here right now telling you he wants to be in your life. He wants to give you eternal I mean, can you imagine what she must have been thinking? How do you come back from that? I mean, you could, you could reject it. But, I mean, he had proven that he had some kind of connection with God here. At this moment, the disciples show up. Wah, wah. <laughs> and they're amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? I mean, this is great, because remember, this is being written by John. This is him. He's putting himself in this own frame, right? And he's like, then we showed up in the middle of, like, this critical moment, woman, I who speak to you, and he. And then we showed up with a grocery, like, hey, Jesus, what are you talking to that woman for? And they're like, mm, we better not ask. You know, John's perspective. I mean, you know, sometimes people talk about, like, why do the disciples look so foolish in some of these things? And it's like, they wrote these. This is their eyewitness account of themselves. They're not being disrespectful. They're being honest. All we, he's saying, look, John is saying this. We showed up and all we could see was the cultural differences. And we didn't even know what to think about what Jesus was doing. But the woman left her water pot, went into the city, and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And the whole city, in the middle of the day, starts going out to Jacob's well to see what this woman is talking about. We read on in 39, From that city of Sychar, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have seen for ourselves, we have heard for ourselves and know this is the one. Indeed, it's the savior of the world. Put yourself back into the Jewish audience. Jesus doesn't go around Samaria. He goes through and leads a whole bunch of Samaritans to true faith and the God of the Bible. How many of them were able to get over the offense of that? And how many of them were able to rejoice? And how many of them were able to follow that example? That's the take-home here for us. What do we do do with this? How do we we approach this? Jesus doesn't let human biases get in the way of God's love. Do we? Are there people that you look at in your life that God puts in your life, and you're like, "Mm, not them. I don't think that would be a very good conversation. (laughs) God, send me a, a, a slow pitch right over the plate. I'm not even going to talk to this person because clearly their religion is different than mine is. Their culture is different than mine is. There's tension between our peoples. I'm just going to keep my head down and I'll be nice, but, you know, I'm not going to go engage with them. That's so human. That's so easy for all of us to fall into. That's so not what God is like. God goes right in. I says, let's talk about this. He isn't afraid to have a respectful but clearly difficult conversation. Let's talk about what's separating us and let's see if we can't do something about it. And it's a great picture here of how truth and love must go together. Paul says, truth, if you're a truth-sayer without love, you're a noisy gong. You're a clanging cymbal. Truth without love is annoying. And it's hard to hear, and it's almost impossible to listen to. And imagine if Jesus had just come in and said, here's your problem, lady. Boom, boom, boom. What do you think about that? What would she have done? But he didn't do that. He said, here's the things that are holding you back from God and your people. But the good news is, is God loves you anyway. And he sent me here so that you could know the truth about him and come into spiritual life. And those two things then put together are powerful. There's nothing more powerful than that. The take home here, too, is if you want to do this, if you want to be involved in having spiritual conversations with people, they will attack you. This will happen. They will argue just like she did. They will deflect just like she did. They'll take cheap shots just like she did. And they'll claim the truth can't be known just like she did. It's a great object lesson, right? And the kinds of things that people go through, and it's also a great inspiring example of how God and his power can go right under those defenses. And you're like, well, yeah, he's Jesus. But Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations and I will be with you. God says that the spirit that gave Jesus this power is in you as a believer. And you just have to believe, you have to have faith. That God is going to give you what is needed in order to be effective. Now, that doesn't guarantee success 100% of the time. Surely not. In the sense of this person is going to come to know Christ. But that might not be the goal of God in that particular situation. You might just be the person who peels off the first layer. And he's got someone else lined up down the road. Success. Success is defined by faithfulness. God asked, God set up an opportunity. Did you tell him yes or did you tell him no? That's what success is. Saying yes to God. And we have to realize that when we encounter people like this, first we intuitively avoid them because we know that's going to be messy if I talk to them. And then, if we are bold enough and brave enough and faithful enough to engage them, we think, "Oh well, free will. No point in uh, you know continuing this conversation. This person is obviously far from God and has shut down their heart." But sometimes those are the people, like the Samaritan woman, who are so close. They're angry and they're hurt. But they're close because if they could come to understand the truth, they would be passionate about that. Also, I think the take-home here is being used by God is the most fulfilling, energizing, noble, meaningful work that we can do, that it is invigorating And energizing to us, we think, oh my gosh, if I had a conversation like that, I'd need a nap afterwards. You know, who has the time to fight with people like that? I've got a lot going on in my life. I feel like my resources are very limited and I avoid those kinds of things because it'll just drain me and take me out. One of the passage, parts of the passages that we skipped is right here. The disciples come in with the groceries, right? And they're saying, Jesus, have something to eat. We brought the food. And Jesus says, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And they're like, you got a sandwich tucked away somewhere? (laughs) No one brought him anything to eat, did they? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I am nourished and energized because I know that I just did something to honor God and to bring glory to his name and to change this woman's life. That's better than any physical food. is the spiritual food that you get by saying yes to God. And that's something that we should think about for sure. Is our spiritual life dry? Do we pine for the days of our spiritual youth when it was so exciting and it was so real and it was so new? And do we wonder, you know, why has it gotten this way where my spiritual life seems like it's routine and there's so many other things going on and I'm just not as excited. Maybe I was just young and naive then, or maybe I've just gone off the the wrong path and there's something really wrong in my spiritual life. I just don't know what it is. But why does it seem like there's no passion for the things of God? I would recommend talking to a woman at the well, if that's the case. I would recommend taking a bold step, risking something, because that is spiritual food. You might be drying up spiritually, starving spiritually, because you're not saying yes to God and risking rejection. And you're thinking well, my spiritual life is too dried up for me to go and do this. It's like being like I'm too starving to lift the sandwich to my mouth. It's just not worth the effort. And Jesus is laying that out here so that we would understand that we get spiritual energy and nourishment by engaging with people who are hostile to God. The final point here, I think, is if you're a newer Christian, you know, you say, well, okay, yeah, I'll do that once I get older. I mean, I got to get some, I got to get my CM classes done, and I got to get my equipping on so that I can answer questions. I don't want to misrepresent God and look stupid, right? So I'm a new Christian, and and, you know, Ryan, what you're saying sounds very good down the road, and that is part of the plan, I assure you. (laughs) But look at the woman at the well. The second She came to understand what she was dealing with. This woman, who was too ashamed to go to the well with everybody else, who was seeking isolation and wanted nothing to do with anyone else, dropped her water jug, ran into town, and told everybody that she saw, come out and see. And of course, they had questions. They were like, "Um, we know you... And we know what you're about. What would have happened if she said, oh, my reputation is so bad. I just don't think I can't be the one to go tell people that Jesus is out here. Because that might make them think Jesus is bad. I mean, she didn't care about any of that. She ran screaming into town. The Messiah is here. Come and see. And you know how many things she knew about the Messiah at that point? One thing. He was there, come and see. She was not a theologically trained, you know, she wasn't going to engage with people, but she was the world's foremost expert on her experience with God. And so are you. You are the world's foremost expert on your experience with God. And if that is all that you have to bring, I challenge you, I challenge you to see what God can do with that. That is the experience that you will find where God will use you and feed you and guide you. And yes, you'll grow in your understanding. And if you'll have to say sometimes, that's a great question. I never thought about that. I'll have to to get back to you, which is just genuine. And people respect that. And it's great to be used by God in that way. Let's pray. God, God, Thank you for the people that you did send into our life who took that risk with us, who took that chance. A lot of us are pretty scary and we're pretty angry and pretty hard-hearted and pretty cynical and pretty ready for a fight. But someone took the chance and said yes to you and it changed everything for us. Help us not to forget that, God. Help us to bring that with us to work. Help us to bring that with us into our neighborhoods. Help us to be sensitive to the leading of your spirit, to trust in you, and help us to overcome the silly differences that keep us apart as men and women. And look at the world and look at the people of the world the way that you do as beloved children and brothers and sisters.